All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, is the day before election day. I know we normally publish these on Tuesday, but it wouldn't be very fair for us to do election predictions the day of the election. You might think that's cheating. Besides, we wanted to give you plenty of time to run over to predict it and make some bets because our very own political prognosticator is going to be giving you some specific information that may uh, give you some insight into what is going to happen on Tuesday. So today, if you stick with us, we're going to go through what got us up to this point, some specific predictions on elections coming out, as well as going around the table and talking about our future predictions on whether or not this is a one-off election cycle or some genuine political realignments are coming. All that and more coming up on this episode. We look forward to hearing from everyone in our Volley Chat. I hope you will go there at the link in the description. Join and let us know that you voted tomorrow and also share your predictions with us as well. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But representing that, James Madison's seat. Representing James Madison's seat. Um, and, and, and that is a distinct honor. That is a distinct honor. With us, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And then, of course, a resident historian, political prognosticator, the guy that is going to make you rich the man of the hour, <laughs> Christian Hines. We are renaming this Making the Argument with Christian Hines. <laughs> <laughs> Making the Prediction with Christian Hines. Oh. Ooh. And then, of course, dangerous. our producer of producers, Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I'm looking forward to hearing what Christian has to say today. Well, this better be good. All right. This is, um, I always love, who knew that I always love the episodes where I get to lead with it? Um, no. <laughs> Hey, so we, Nick, um, Nick and I have actually talked about this quite a lot leading up to this election. It's, it's really funny. It's like every single election cycle, it'll be like a day or two before the election. Nick will either like call me or text me and be like, Hey Christian, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Um, so, but it's it's, because you're like almost never wrong. I I have been wrong a few times. Um, Only a few. I I will, I will, again, just to kind of lay this up a little bit, we actually have a thing in Virginia called uh, the uh, VPAP Pundit of the Year Year Award. And you actually have to predict several races in it, and it's whoever gets the closest, and like thousands of people participate in this. Christian has has won it before. He's. uh, It was actually four years ago today that I won it. Yeah. So he he's uh, not he's that he's actually counting or anything. Yeah, <laughs> he's actually set up various models and whatnot. And and again, we'll get into a little bit of that going into this as well because it's important for people to understand. I think a lot of people got frustrated with some of the polling, and and if you're a conservative, especially, you always feel like the polling is kind of skewed against you. And and there's some good reason to believe that. Um, but the question is, is that be is that because every single pollster out there is just you know a, a left wing ideologue that is trying? Well, no, they they still got to get it right. Otherwise, they also lose credibility. It's because, to some degree, 
polling's been a little bit it's slow. Been, it, it is on picking up on new trends. Yes, the and we've talked about some of these trends on this podcast in previous episodes about political realignments. And I, I, I do notice that in the last several cycles, really, especially since 2016, polling has underestimated Republicans many times. Now, there's been some talk that maybe some of the polling firms have actually overcorrected this time. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that, but let's let, let's see. Before we actually get into some specific races where I can point to and, and say, here's what I think some factors are going to be pushing it either in the left or right. Let's just remind the audience how we got to the point where we are right now. And here's what I mean by that. Yeah. My gut intuition is that, spoiler alert, I think the GOP is going to have a pretty good night. I don't think it's going to be an overwhelmingly good night, but I think they're going to have a pretty good night tomorrow. And the reason why is not necessarily because of any particular thing that the Republicans did. I think a lot of it has to do with what the Democrats did this year. And Nick, I know that you and I actually talked about this multiple times actually yeah. in, in some cases on this show about how the democrats fumbled the ball so to speak well i feel like all eyes were on the virginia uh, election in 2021 where governor yunkin won some serious jason Meares, you know swept it and then the republicans took control of the virginia house of delegates and it, it, it's interesting because there was a lot of people predicting okay what what sort of lessons are we going to learn from this and what's fascinating is I, I do feel like there are a lot of Republicans that did learn some important lessons from it. And Democrats learned a lot of lessons. They're just all the wrong ones, right? <laughs> like the one, one of the biggest issues, and, and this goes in specifically, I think, with uh, minority voters, is that what we saw in Virginia in 2021 was this idea that Democrats con took complete control. So they had the governor, attorney general, lieutenant governor, House, Senate, right? They could do whatever they want. And boy, did they, right? They did just about everything they wanted to do, hardcore, in your face. A lot of it was around education. A lot of it was around stuff with crime and things of that nature. And the end result was is that it had, it had negative effects, and it wasn't all because of individual policy positions. It was a combination of individual policy positions, some of them which were deemed, get this, by a federal judge to be racist, right? They had actual policies uh, with admissions processes to certain like uh, schools within Virginia where they were they had written up the new policy in such a way which, it, it again, it caused a federal judge to say, you are discriminating against Asian students. Right. And then there was a lot of other things with school shutdowns, et cetera, which these were specific policies. But there was also this general sentiment within the Democratic Party that, you know, th this is the way that we should be doing things. And if you don't agree, you're a bigot or a racist. Right. There couldn't be any other explanation. So a parent is upset about their kid's school getting shut down or a parent's upset about their kid not even being able to get into school, despite the fact that they have the four point five GPA and everything else. And a lot of these parents we're not like right-wing conservative Republicans. A lot of these parents were either fairly politically neutral or even maybe a little bit center-left, but they were frustrated about, well, wait a second, why, why is this being pushed to my kid's school? Or why can't my kid get into the school? Or why can't my kid go to school? And the result from the left was, oh, you must be a bigot or a racist. And, and if you think that's a hyperbolic statement, go look at what the Teachers Union in Chicago said when they said that the push to reopen schools is rooted in like bigotry, misogyny, and sexism, yep. right? Go look at what happened when you saw parents showing up to the school board meetings and the National School Board Association, you know, try to coordinate with the Department of Ju the Biden Department of Justice and even potentially the National Guard. That was what they requested. 
in, in order to go after and track and monitor these parents that were showing up at school board meetings. And so you had a lot of parents that said, this is, this is ridiculous. This is too much. And they thought that when they went to go speak to their representatives or when, when the people they had voted for, when they, when they approached them with this, their response would be, oh, you know, no, we get it. We're trying to address this. You're right. That's a little bit too much. We're, we're pulling this back. That's not what happened. It was, you're a racist. You're a sexist. You're a bigot. You don't care about equity. And a lot of these parents were like, oh, my gosh. It's like what Republicans have been claiming about you is true. You do just sit there and name call everybody that disagrees with you and, and try to play you know, the, these various cards that the, the Democrats have used successfully now for a long time. Yeah. Because, again, during the, Barack, during the Obama administration, everything was about was this is the new Democrat coalition. The coalition of the ascendants. The coalition of the ascendant, and it, and it was this idea you know of a, funny? a minority coalition. And it, and if you disagreed with their policies, it must be because you don't like minorities. And then when minorities found themselves in the crosshairs, the yeah. ones suffering from the policies, whether it was really really weak on crime or whether it was stuff that was going on with schools, and the minority parents came forward and said, "Hey, I want to see a change to this," they got called racist. Yeah. The, the, it, what, what's funny is is that um, the coalition of the ascendant is still intact. It's yeah. just shifted to the right in some of these states. Not all of them, as yeah. we'll get into. But I, I, to to add to your point, Nick, and and we're going to get into some some specific races later on in this podcast when we get into to actually making some. I've I've got a prediction map for both the House and Senate that I'm going to show, and I'll make some specific points for for both chambers. And we might even touch on some gubernatorial races because there's some fun ones that are yeah. that are coming up tomorrow. But um, wh what I found so fascinating was it wasn't just on the education front that I think Democrats dropped the ball. I think that that was the thing that that really opened the the eyes up for so many people that lived in, especially some of these states that had some really tough lockdowns. Michigan is is one in particular where the Democratic governor um, Gretchen Whitmer she went on the debate stage just a few. Like, like a week or, or two ago and was like, oh, well, the schools were only shut down for three months. That was a blatant lie. Yeah. She had shut down the schools in that state for over a year. Yeah. And, and parents in that state remember that. They also remember um, going into grocery stores and having the gardening section taped off with signs saying under order of the governor, you're not, you're legally not allowed to purchase these products at Walmart. Yeah. And, the, the draconian shutdowns, I think, really turned a, a, not a, not necessarily a majority, but a huge chunk of the population off. But it wasn't just the education and shutdowns. I also think that that let's get into some, some of the stuff that is like dominating the way that the public is is looking at this midterm. I really think that the big three issues that the average midterm voter and there's a lot of var variables here, but I think the average midterm voter is is caring about inflation, crime and immigration. Those are the three things. And you can you can add in the economy, but that's really just another way to describe inflation right now. Mm -hmm. Or you could add in jobs. That's another way to describe inflation. And what have Democrats done on that front? They they not only have they it, it would have been bad enough if they had done nothing yeah. on that front. Instead, they actually pushed things that made inflation worse, made crime worse, and made inflation worse. And then they went back to those voters and said, you know what? You shouldn't care about those issues. Nancy Pelosi herself said, we should change the subject yeah. when people bring it's up inflation. Yeah. It's, when people bring up inflation, that's a bad thing. We should change the subject. So Democrats went to the voters and said, here's the issues you should care about this midterm. You should care about abortion, climate change, 
and, and January 6th. January 6th. Yeah. Those are the things that you should care about. Oh, go, going into the final days of the election. Going into the final days of the election, Joe Biden is out there talking about, like, if you don't vote for us, It'll be the democracy, end of democracy is in danger. Like, give me a break. And 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 here's, I, I will tell you, the, the part that's a little bit scary to me about this is I, I was talking to someone the other day who's a friend and who's definitely on the left. And their position was like, well, I'm just, I'm just scared for our democracy. And, and you're looking at him going, but are you really? But, I, but no, I you, actually think that but I actually are think you a really? lot of them are. Okay. I don't buy it because if you were, if you were literally so scared for your democracy, right? You wouldn't be at a party somewhere or going out and hanging out. I mean, you would be out there just every day knocking doors like, oh my gosh, do you realize if Republicans get elected, that's the last election we'll ever have. But Nick, you've got to remember that these are people who think that the way that you defeat a fascist dictator is by voting early. <laughs> like, no, seriously, the same people who said that Trump is a fascist dictator in the yeah. same mold as Hitler and Mussolini also yeah. thought that, well, the way that we beat him is is yeah. we just cast cast paper ballots I know, if in only, a box. If and, only the Italians had done that in the 30s, yeah, right? I mean, oh, we wouldn't have had Mussolini. Yeah, after after Mussolini or Hitler took over, didn't they just know that they could have just voted Hitler out of office? <laughs> like, it, it, no, So I, I, I actually do disagree with you on that. I genuinely think I don't I don't necessarily think the leaders believe this. But I certainly think the rank-and-file Democrat voters have been scared to death by the media that they consume and, and the, the, the bubble that they live in that their number one issue is January 6th. But what they don't understand is that that's not the number one issue for the general public. The general public wants to figure out how they're going to get to work because gas is $4.50 a gallon or how they're going to be able to feed their family because when they go to the grocery store and they get three bags of groceries, it turns out to be $60. Well, those are the issues. Or if they're living in the Rio Grande Valley, they have to worry about drugs coming into the country and a wave of migrants um, taking up services in their community. And these are communities that are 95% Hispanic. Mm -hmm. These are problems, or if they're in Miami-Dade, these are people that fled socialist regimes and now are having to deal with a political party in the United States that whose who's thought leaders are basically pushing the same policies that existed in places like Venezuela and, well, let, let's, and, and stuff like that. So I really do think that the reason that we got into this problem is for Democrats. The reason the Democrats got into this problem is because they looked at the issues that voters cared about, inflation, crime, and we haven't even really talked about crime yet. Inflation, yeah. crime, and and um uh immigration, and they told the American people that not only should they not care about those, they should care about abortion, climate change on January 6th, and if they don't care about those, they're bigots and they're a threat to democracy. When, and and so it here, is here's another... never a good idea. I'll end with this. It is never a good idea to tell the voters that the things that they care about are irrelevant and that they're wrong for caring about those yeah. things. Well, but – and. Because you, you brought up the Tina brought up this point earlier. We we're also talking about this whole idea of Democrats really doubling down on abortion. They really thought that was going to be their saving grace during this election. Yeah, a lot cycle. of Republicans thought so, too. Like That's They true. were freaking out when yeah. uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. They were like, why would they do this right before the midterms? And they were really, you know, worried about the impact this would have. Well, <clears> we <throat> just found out that like the latest polling, they even talked about this on The View. Right. Sally. What was it? Sally. Uh, Hostin or whatever got up Who there. Who cares, and, right? Well, well, but she got up there and said, you know, there's a recent poll that's showing that that suburban women are swinging 15 points toward Republicans. Now that doesn't mean 15 point advantage. It means where they were at, you know, with Democrats. Now they've swung 15 points to be, you know, voting majority Republican. And she described that as that's like cockroaches voting for raid. I remember that oh, line. Yeah, I remember that. 
And, well, and she based was, on abortion. There was another candidate also that I saw being interviewed or during a debate, and they were talking about crime. And she goes, well, I, I mean, if that's important to you. She kind of did this whole, well, I don't know why that's so that important. That was Hochul. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was, was Hochul, Kathy Hochul in New York. Yeah. And then you've got other Democrats saying, you know, just eat Chef Boyardee to combat the inflation. <laughs> yeah. Let them eat or Stacey Abrams, abort your baby yeah. and to deal with that inflation. will help with inflation. Unbelievable. So, I, I, again, the just disconnect from the average voter. This is the, like, like when Democrats get wiped out on Tuesday, because I do think they're going to get wiped out, and we're about to get into some specific races here. When they get wiped out on Tuesday, they have nobody to blame but themselves. But they're not going to blame themselves. They're going to no. be like, it's the voters that are wrong. Yeah. Was I, what's that meme from, from the Simpsons? Wait, am I out of touch? No, it's the children that are wrong. Well, the, <laughs> the, the meme here is going to be, am I out of touch? No, it's the voters that are wrong. Yeah. Like, and that's the incredible thing. Well, okay, let me ask you a question on this because it used to be that people, I mean, the, the general political knowledge was win or lose, Republicans tend to be more out of touch, right? The Democrats are the end of touch, the party of the working people, the whole deal. Uh, or, or even under Obama, it was the idea of this coalition of working people and minorities. And then what we're slowly seeing is that, uh, okay, well, working people didn't really like a lot of their policies. And now we're seeing that minorities don't like a lot of their policies. But there are some other demographics that have become overwhelmingly left-leaning. And this is why they're out of touch because yeah. the people that are the, – the, the Democratic Party's base has become I, – I, we, we say this as like a caricature, but it's become the ivory tower academics. It's become these, these white, college-educated, suburban, relatively wealthy voters. Mm -hmm. And those are people – Thomas Sowell talks about this all the time. That is the demographic that is the most disconnected from reality. Yeah. The, the academic class is the most disconnected from reality in large part because they pay no price for being disconnected. Yeah. Well, they live, from in a, they live in an academic bubble, which they, they admit like there's actual polling on this. They, they admit that, especially within certain fields, they deliberately go the extra mile to ensure that only certain people of an ideological bent can get into those positions, those tenured positions, things of that nature. And so they, they have created an echo chamber within academia and then, their students go into that, and then obviously they've got you know everywhere. It from becomes four to a feedback years. loop they, because yeah. then those same students end up becoming the new the new the new generation of professors or the new generation of elitists that live in these these core suburbs and cities. And they really believe that they know more than everybody else. They, yeah. There is this superiority complex. I saw um, recently, just I think last night, I was trying to pull it back up and I couldn't find it again. But uh, one of the candidates actually said, you know. The American people didn't even know what inflation was or what that word meant till the GOP started harping on it. <laughs> that is the message of a loser right yeah. there. And I mean, how many times have we seen other Democrats? I think it was uh, Waters or something that said, you know, the average voter doesn't understand these things. They Or maybe that was Pelosi. They don't understand these things. We have to understand them for them because they don't. They're not to the level of thinking, basically, that they are. I mean, it really sounds well, it like... It was Pelosi that said we need to change the subject, too. And there, there's there's one Democrat that is running for U.S. Senate. He's going to lose on Tuesday. Um, and in fact, I might actually use this to start talking about some races. Yeah, let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and get... Yeah, before you do that, though, okay. I, I just want to highlight really quickly that um, the way Christian does his predictions, if you know Christian, he tends to be more of a pessimist. <laughs> um, and he would argue that he's a realist, but... Um, he is tends to be very reserved in his um, 
in his predictions and and does he per, for him it's very important to be right so a lot of times you can look at um, all these experts rolling in that you know you've got your people on the right and your people on the left that are making their predictions and they're all experts right but you can see the different bias within their prediction and they're always trying to boost their own side with their prediction and um, or tamp down the losses or whatever it is with Christian I will say you can. <laughs> 100% count on the fact that he does not pad any you, numbers. Even if it means we're losing, he will say it. I've yeah. got a story. I don't even know if I'm allowed to share this. No, don't share. <laughs> I'm scared now. I've, I've got a story of Nick's congressional race, yeah. and I created a model before the election to try to predict the outcome because I wanted to know what was going to happen with our race. I wanted us to win, and I plugged in the numbers, and I was like, oh, we're going we're gonna to come up short. And it was heartbreaking to do that right mm -hmm. but like and i've done this before like in 2019 when i predicted that republicans would lose the house and senate here in virginia and that democrats would have a trifecta for the first time in my life um living here yeah it was and so depressing to to hear you but the thing is is you you typically are correct yeah, and so and so with that knowledge listening through that lens so to speak uh now hear what Christian has to say about <laughs> well, everything. I, I yeah, think, it, I think it's, not, it's not often when the congressional candidate has to go outside and talk his his pollster off the ledge as opposed to the other way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, I, 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 we bring this up, and I think Tina brought this up in large part because she wanted to tell the audience that I, I don't really pull punches. No. I, I, I really do pride myself on... I care about being right, not necessarily telling somebody what they want to hear. Yeah. If it's going to rain, I'm going to tell you it's going to rain, yeah. um, even if you don't have an umbrella. Um, <laughs> but that's but why we can trust what you the say. The good news is... I think it's going to be very bright and sunny on Tuesday. Um, it's morning again. All right, so where do we America? start? <laughs> Even in Christians, America. All right, so where do we start off with the Senate, the House? What do we? Yeah, got? we'll start with the Senate. Okay. So, and the reason why I want to begin with the Senate is because I really do think that that this is the chamber to uh, to watch on on election night. For those of you at home that are actually tuning into this podcast because they genuinely want to get an idea, maybe they haven't been paying attention to the polls every single day or they haven't been paying attention to the entire map every single day, I really want to give the audience some some real valuable information that they could use if they want to watch this and understand a little bit more than, than, than anybody else in their circle, so to speak. And I really do think that the Senate is the chamber to watch. Out of all the races for governor, House, and Senate, this is the most important one. And the reason why is because I, I think that Republicans are effectively guaranteed to win the House at this point. Yeah. But it's really kind of uh, up in the air as to how the Senate's going to come down. Currently, 538 says the Republicans have about a 54 to 55% chance of winning the Senate. Wow. But that's actually really basically almost a toss-up still. Um so I've actually got 538's map up. This is not my prediction. This is Nate Silver's prediction. Yeah. Um, Nate Silver's a guy who's definitely left of center, but he's he's relatively well-known because he gets it right more often than not. Um, when I, and I think they, I've seen stuff by 538 before where they really got out of their way to try to be objective. I'm not saying they always pull it off, but I, I've seen more of an effort from them than I have some They're other biased places. in their coverage, but they're not necessarily biased in their predictions. Yeah. So don't read their stuff for their articles, yeah. right? But but definitely pay attention to their their um, polling stuff. So I've got the map shown up, and at some point I'll, I'll actually bring up my prediction map too when we're done with the Senate. Um, let's start with the five races that I 
don't think are necessarily the the five most competitive. There's 10 races in total that are competitive. Okay. Five that are kind of like second tier and then five that are like top tier. The five that are, are, are like the second tier races that everybody's yeah. kind of going to be looking for for a wave in either direction are Washington State, Colorado, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and um, Ohio. Those are the five right there. So there's three that are held by Republicans and two that are held by Democrats currently. Washington State and Colorado are held by Democrat incumbents. Uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, and North Carolina are held by Republican incumbents. North Carolina and Ohio are open seats. They're held by Republican incumbents that aren't running for re-election. Washington and Colorado are held by Democrat incumbents, and Wisconsin's held by a Republican incumbent. Now, these are five races that Republicans are targeting the two blue ones. Democrats are targeting the three red ones, but not none of them should flip. Okay. They should all be held by, by each party. But when you actually get into the details, let's pull up 538 for Washington. For example, Nate Silver thinks that Democrats have over a 90% chance of winning Washington, but that's his percent chance of winning the seat. Yeah. When you look at the polling, it's a lot closer. It's, it's, it's within 10 points in polling. Um, and th- that's his model. This is his model popular vote right here. So Nate Silver thinks that Washington State is going to basically go to Patty Murray with about 54% of the vote, that she's going to win by about nine points um, for those that aren't watching us that are listening to yeah. us. But when you look at the polling that has taken place, this is where it gets really interesting. Yeah, plus one, plus two. Every single poll that we've seen really in the last like two to three weeks or so has been within 10 points. And she's and, barely and it's, above 50. It's been closing. That's the that's the incredible thing. If you actually go further back into early October or if you go even way further back into like September, what you see is is that Murray had been leading relatively overwhelmingly until Labor Day, post Labor Day, when people started paying attention in October. Um, that's when the race started tightening up. She previously, and, and 538 doesn't have this, but if you actually go even further back, it was not a competitive race really on anybody's radar until people started tuning in in October. And what happened was is that, well, Murray's advantages started to evaporate. You saw poll after poll, and these are these are relatively high-rated polls. Um, insider advantage, Trafalgar, these are polls that okay. 538 says are kind of like A or B-rated polls, which means that they're, they're fairly high-quality yeah, yeah. polls. What were you going to say, Nick? No, I was just going to ask you, like, one of the things that you, you talk a lot about, and, and if you plan to mention it later, that's fine, but it's the whole 50%. Yes. In fact, I actually want to bring this up in this race okay. because— I currently have Washington State rated myself as a lean Democrat race. Not a likely Democrat, not a safe Democrat, not a tilt Democrat or a toss-up, let alone a Republican flip. I think yeah. it's a lean Democrat race, which means that I think that Democrats have, you know, s- somewhere in the in the neighborhood of like 70 to 80% odds of winning. Again, that's not 100%. That means yeah. that that 30 40, you know, 30 40% of the time Republicans will win this seat. Yeah. Um which what I'm trying to say is, is that this is a race that could flip in a landslide. If Republicans actually pull off like a 1994 style landslide, this could flip potentially. I don't think it's it's very likely, but, but if Washington state goes, I mean, that is the sign of Republicans are getting like 54, 55 seats. I I kind of don't think Washington state will go because we lived in Washington (laughs) during the Dino Rossi recount saga where he won by like 500 and something Votes or something. But then they kept recounting. The and then recount. they recounted. They recounted, and he won by even more votes, like a thousand something. And then they recounted again, um, and I think it was like pretty. They, he started losing a few votes, and yeah. then they found some votes in King County Seattle. of all places. Seattle. 
And all of a sudden, he lost by several hundred votes. And, and that was, it was and the fourth it was like, recount. And she goes, the people have spoken. It is time to stop recounting. <laughs> and so knowing that, like, I feel like in anywhere where Democrats really control a lot of stuff, Republicans... <laughs> I mean, I they're hate- at a disadvantage for sure. Yeah. Well, I don't well, think the- it's likely that the Republicans flip this seat. But the reason I wanted to bring up Washington is because I wanted to introduce our audience to a trend line that I've picked up. I, I poured through election analysis for many, many cycles now. This is not a hundred percent rule, but this is more like seventy-five percent of the time you see this happen. When an incumbent consistently polls under fifty percent, even if they're leading. Even if they could lead every single poll. 49 to 45. But if yeah. they're not breaking 50% over and over again, at least like three or four times, what you see is they're more likely than not going to lose. Okay. Especially if they're on the defense. And what I mean by that is if they're in a cycle where the winds is is pushing against them, it's a midterm, the exact same sort of thing that Patty Murray's having to deal with. She's the Democrat incumbent, right? You've got Democrat control over, over Congress and the presidency. So, so... It is a midterm cycle that is not going to be going well for Democrats. When those things align and you're an incumbent and you're consistently pulling under 50%, there's a greater than 50% chance that you're going to lose. Okay, so North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, they're probably staying Republican at this point. I, I that is That is true. So, so to, to wrap up Washington, yeah. I do think that Democrats are favored, but not overwhelmingly. Okay. Um, and the bottom line is, is and, and this is another important part for people to understand on this, all right? Because every once in a while they'll say, like, hey, you know, why are we even talking about Washington State? When, when I start to see the Democratic Party throwing money into states that they should not have to do Where it. they same, should be safe. Same thing with Republicans. That's that's bad because every dollar that's being spent there is not being spent in one of these more competitive races where mm-hmm. they absolutely need him. Mm-hmm. But so the idea that the the idea that Patty Murray, who's been there forever, is even in danger, is even in danger in Washington State, a state which is largely dominated by Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia. I mean, that's that's pretty fascinating to to plow through this. Colorado, I think, is actually likely Democrat. Okay. And, and the reason why is because um, Bennett has been breaking that 50 percent margin in many of the recent polls. Mm-hmm. It's it's still relatively tight, but that is a sign. Plus, Colorado's trend to the left that we've seen over the past five to 10 years. You know, Denver is in many ways kind of a Seattle in the middle of the desert. Right. Yeah. Um so I do think that Colorado is a likely Democrat. I, again, if Colorado flips, again, another sign of a red wave. I don't think it's terribly likely, though, especially because the state's demographics plus the fact that Bennett has been breaking 50%. Um, Wisconsin is interesting. 538, actually, at one point, back in the uh, late summer, early fall, back in late August into um, mid-September, Democrats were really closing the gap there. Um 538 at one point thought that Wisconsin was basically a pure toss-up. And now what you've seen is basically Ron Johnson, the Republican incumbent, has just broken out, and and it's become uncompetitive at this point. I think that Wisconsin is pretty likely going to end up falling in the Republican column. And you're seeing this in the polling, right, where Johnson has been breaking 50%. Plus, he's got the wind at his back because it is a midterm election where Republicans are favored to do well because that is the traditional pattern that we've seen in midterm elections. Sure. And I bring this up um, because— and we haven't we didn't talk about this earlier in the episode. Midterm elections traditionally do well for the party out of power. The party that does not control the White House traditionally does well in midterms. There's been two exceptions to that rule in any of our lifetimes, and that was 2002 and 1998. And they were very, very 
uh, extraneous circumstances. 2002 was post 9-11 and the, the country was basically rallying behind yeah. the party in power, which was the Republicans. 1998, it was the aftermath of the Bill Clinton trial. The general public, even though they didn't really like Clinton's behavior, they thought that Republicans had overreached on that and Republicans had basically overpromised and underdelivered. And so they, they didn't lose control over Congress, but they yeah. didn't make gains. Yeah. And so those are the only two exceptions to that rule. Every other midterm election, going back to like the 50s, has been the party out of power. Even if they don't flip a chamber, yeah, they, they pick, pick up, up seats. seats. All right, so what state? So those are the five that are kind of second tier. I want to end with, um, in terms of the second tier races, North Carolina is another example where Republicans are favored because it's a state that voted for Trump. Yeah. Um, there's not an incumbent that has any sort, like the previous incumbent actually had some really bad track record related to like selling stocks right when COVID hit yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Luckily he's leaving. And so Republicans don't, they're not being weighed down by that. Um, and the polling there is pretty clear that Republicans are favored to win. I want to end with Ohio. And the, uh, for, for the, the, the second tier races that Republicans um, and Democrats are, are targeting, but probably not likely going to flip. And the reason why is because there's one Democrat, and I was hinting at this earlier in segment one, there's one Democrat out of everybody that's running in the U.S. Senate this year that has actually run a good campaign. And his name is Tim Ryan. He's the Democrat <laughs> that's running for U.S. Senator in Ohio. And yeah. Tim Ryan's probably going to lose, yeah. very likely going to lose. I've got Ohio as a likely Republican pickup, um, not not pickup, likely Republican hold. And you're seeing this in the polling where J.D. Vance has been leading pretty handily in most of the polling. Ohio has zoomed to the right in large part because it's a largely working class state. There's a lot of blue collar voters that have been basically treated like garbage by the Democrats and abandoned. And they've they've in turn abandoned the Democrats. Ohio used to be one of the I mean, it was like the swing state in the country. And it's just not anymore. It's shifted very hard to the right over the last few years. So Ryan is probably going to lose. But the reason I want to bring him up is because he's actually run ads that have said things like, I know your family's hurting from inflation and I'm going to work to fight against yeah. it. I know that you care about the price of groceries. I know you care about rising crime in your city. He was just on the news trashing the DNC. <laughs> he's at, and again, he's going to lose. And I wouldn't vote for him because I disagree with him heavily on a lot of these policies. But from a messaging standpoint, he's literally one of the only Democrats that has at least attempted to talk about issues that voters actually care about rather than tell those voters you're wrong and you're a bigot because you can't care about this, this, and this. He hasn't done that. His campaign, to their credit, actually looked at the polling and said, oh, well, you know, we wish we could talk about January 6th and abortion and climate change, but that's not what the voters actually care about in my state. The voters actually care about rising crime and high gas prices and high infra inflation. Maybe we should actually talk about those things. That it, it, the fact that, that Ohio is even competitive this cycle is a testament to the fact that he's at least trying to talk about the issues that voters actually care about. And so I bring this up because this has some big implications in other states where Democrats are not doing this. So I just wanted, that's the reason I wanted to bring up Ohio, not because I actually think it's going to flip. I do think J.D. Vance is going to win. I've got it as a likely Republican pickup. But the reason is, is because the reason it's even competitive is because the Democrat there is actually doing what, you know, you should be doing when you're running for office. So those are the five races that are kind of like the second tier ones that that parties are contesting, but shouldn't flip unless something crazy happens. So now we get into the fun ones. Um, the five most competitive Senate races in the country. These are really the five states that you need to be watching um, on election night because this is going to determine everything. 
in large part because these races also, most of them, but not all of them, also have very competitive gubernatorial elections as well. And many of them have very competitive elections for the House, um, House of Representatives too. These five are Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire. Um, Republicans currently only hold one of these five seats and they hold Pennsylvania and the incumbent Republican is vacating the seat. So it's an open seat. Yeah. That's the Oz Fetterman. That's the Oz Fetterman one. Um, the other four are held by, um, Democrat incumbents, all four of them and Republicans. Um, if, if they end up flipping one of them, they have to hold Pennsylvania or they have to flip two. Right. But if they hold Pennsylvania and they flip one of them, they get control of the, of, of the chamber. If they lose Pennsylvania, then they need to flip two other ones out of out of the remaining four. Um, but if they hold Pennsylvania, they just need to flip one and they end up having control of the chamber. But these are the five states that will end up determining control of the U.S. Senate. And these are probably the five most important states in the entire country on election night that most uh, most eyes are going to be fixed on. Um, so tell us about Pennsylvania, then you want to start with Pennsylvania. That's important. Well, yeah. because that's what everything's hinging on. So Pennsylvania is uh, a really interesting one here. Um, if you actually pull up 538, they still think that Fetterman is favored to win. I disagree. I actually think that Oz is going to win, which I could not imagine saying that even two or three months ago. Yeah. I thought that Pennsylvania was basically as good as gone. But so is that, is that all? I mean, do you think that's primarily because of the debate performance? No, I think that it was moving in that direction. The debate performance simply ramped it up to the point that I actually felt comfortable saying that it's a tilt Republican race. Okay, can you tell us why? So what had happened was is that Republicans nominated Oz. They were very, very divided over that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Democrats were relatively united around Fetterman. But what they noticed was is that as the campaign kept going on, Fetterman's campaign was basically a Twitter Instagram campaign where they were just posting memes and just ratioing and trolling Oz over and over again. It was an extremely online campaign. But Fetterman's campaign, despite the fact that Fetterman himself should have fit the demographics of Pennsylvania, he came from a working-class family, he himself was um, uh, ha had a blue-collar background before he got involved into politics, he should have been able to connect well with the state's demographics, but his campaign never really focused on those issues. His campaign just focused on whatever the Zoomer millennial crowd that were running it within the Democratic Party's campaign apparatus wanted to talk about. And they wanted to talk about January 6th abortion and climate change. And Oz actually ran a relatively disciplined campaign. He himself was not necessarily a, a perfect politician. He was not a, a inherent politician. He, he kind of had to learn how to do this. Um, but his campaign was relatively disciplined. And his campaign was like, we are going to focus on crime and inflation. Those are the two things. Third one you could argue is energy because Pennsylvania has a lot of fracking potential. But um, Oz's campaign kept hammering away at the crime issue in large part because crime has just absolutely spiraled out of control in Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs. Yeah. In large part because there's a George Soros-backed DA in Philadelphia that has just chosen, you know what? It's not a crime if we don't prosecute it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and lo and behold, that is not a really good strategy to keep violent crime under control. I, I, I do I do find it funny that we have people that, that seem to think that, well, uh, no, 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 uh, crime has gone down. Okay, it, yeah, if, you're right. If you don't arrest or prosecute people for victimizing other people, theoretically, your crime stats might have gone down, but your victims go up. Like, do you see how that works? Yeah. So the crime thing really became a big issue in Philadelphia. Um, and and this wasn't just affecting, like, rich white liberals in the suburbs. This was really affecting black and Hispanics in Philadelphia. 
And what you started seeing was, is it wasn't just affecting them. It was also affecting these swing suburban voters, not necessarily the, the white elite liberals, but the traditional suburban swing voters out in like um, Chester County, Bucks County, Burke, stuff like that. And in, in the Philadelphia collar counties, um, Delaware County. Um, and so what happened was, is that Fetterman's campaign kind of like fell off the rails really starting in like the beginning of October. And Oz's campaign was disciplined and kept focused on the issues that actually mattered in Pennsylvania. And I don't say this as a partisan Republican. I'm just saying this as an analyst. And then the debate happened. And the debate really exposed. It was already moving in a competitive direction. It had yeah. been, many people thought that it was basically going to be a Democrat pickup. But then the debate, it, it was starting to tighten from that point. And, and it was getting into a, okay, it wasn't a guaranteed Democrat pickup anymore, but they were still favored, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the debate happened. And we've talked about this on this podcast. Yeah, even Cuomo was like, Ooh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that debate was a complete disaster. And from that point onwards, it basically became a, it became a toss up. All right. So Oz beats Fetterman. I think that Oz does beat Fetterman. Okay. And that's a pickup. And I, no, no, oh, no, that's sorry. A that's, a, that's a hold. That's a hold. Sorry. Um, Which means we only need to pick up one more. That's so what you're saying. Well, I want to talk about Nevada now. Yeah. Um, Nevada is, um, a state that Democrats have just won consistently since 2008, right? Obama won it in 2008. Yeah. He won it again in 2012. Hil um, Hillary Clinton won it in 2016. Joe Biden won it in 2020. In 2018, the, um, uh, last Republican Senator in, um, or sorry, in 2016, the last Republican Senator in Nevada lost in 2018 Republicans, um, uh, came up short. Uh, again so so nevada is is just like it kills nevada. me every time he says nevada, nevada. you we're I'm gonna have we're going to have people from nevada yeah who are I going apologize. to say you are not saying i love this the silver state but i've never been there <laughs> um but long story short republicans have just it, it's it's almost like virginia in the sense that we just they we just kept losing yeah but you have to have, you have to look at the trend line the state had been that entire time that Republicans kept losing, the state had been getting redder and redder and redder in relation to the entire country. Um, in 2008, Nevada was over, it was something like six points to the left of the country, five mm -hmm. or six points to the left of the country. And by the time 2020 came around, even the Republicans came up short, Nevada actually voted to the right of the rest of the country, despite the fact that Trump lost it. Huh. It has been a trend line towards the right. And the reason why is because Clark County is not nearly as Democrat-leaning as people believe that it is. In fact, I will prove it to you. Here is the vote trend in Clark County, Nevada. Um, I've got Wikipedia's article pulled up. This is the presidential vote results here. Clark County is where Las Vegas is. This is like the overwhelming majority of the people who live in the state live there. It's yeah. very urban and suburban state. Yeah. Large uh, number of minority population, large black population, large Hispanic population. Um, it has all the makings, all the hallmarks of a strong Democrat, you know, 60, 70% Democrat. And yet Joe Biden couldn't get 54% of the vote in Clark County. Wow. And that is down from 2008 when Barack Obama got almost 60% in Clark County. Clark County is an urban county, home of Las Vegas, over a million residents. And yet it has been getting redder since 2008, not bluer, which is just completely contrary to what Democrats were hoping for with the whole coalition of the ascendants. So yeah. 
Nevada has been getting more and more competitive. And I really do think this is going to be the cycle where it finally flips. So you think all the other areas that are a lot redder than Clark oh, County rural. Yeah. are yeah. going to be able to get enough oomph to yes. get over the line? Yes. The Democrats have a firewall of mail-in ballots that they've got, but it's it's a lot weaker than it was in 2018. In 2018, it was like 45,000 uh, advantage. And right now it's like 35,000 or something yeah. like that. So it and, and the polling has shown this. And in large part, this goes back into the 50% rule. Um, uh, um, Cortez Mosto, who is the Democrat incumbent, um, Senator, she has not broken 50% in a single poll conducted basically wow. going back to like the late summer. Um, and in fact, Laxalt, um, Adam Laxalt, who's the Republican challenger, former attorney general in Nevada, he, um, he's been leading in most of the polling. Now people can say, oh, well, Harry Reid also, um, fell behind in a lot of polling in 2010 and he came out on top because he had that union machine um, where the culinary union in, in Clark County came out for him yeah. and Harry Reid was the Democrat um, majority leader at the time right and and he was supposedly going to lose in 2010 but he won and so we're going to see the exact same thing here I don't think so because the demographic shift from 2010 to today is so much more favorable to Republicans in this state than it was 12 years ago. Because a lot of those Hispanic voters that voted for Harry Reid in 2010, they're not going to be voting for Cortez Mosto this time around. So I've got Nevada as a Republican flip. And I think that it's really going to be a state that will potentially prove the the thesis that Republicans are, are making gains with Hispanic voters. Okay. Okay. So at that point, we flip the Senate. If 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 we hold Pennsylvania, hold Pennsylvania and we flip Nevada, we flip the Senate. But okay, now tell us about. The I next don't think ones. it's going to end there. I think Republicans are going to get more but than wait, fifty-one seats. There's, there's more. There's more. <laughs> All right. Um, Arizona's one where I have the biggest difference between me and Nate Silver. Nate Silver thinks that um, Mark Kelly has a basically two-to-one advantage in terms of likelihood to win, and I actually think that he loses. And here's the reason why. Kerry Lake. Couple reasons. Carrie Lake is doing phenomenal at the top of the ticket. She's yeah. run probably if if um, Tim Ryan has run the best campaign of any Democrat, Carrie Lake has run the best campaign of any Republican. Can, this let, cycle. let me just say one thing on that. Like if, if you were to ask me, one of the things I look at with Republican candidates is how well do you handle the press? Because the press are almost universally trying to trip you up, make you feel stupid, make you look like an idiot, say something stupid. And, and the press in Arizona, really press across the country, did as good a job as I have ever seen in demonizing a primary candidate and making it look like she was just this bumbling moron. And then when she got the nomination and all of a sudden she had to, she was the one standing in front of the camera talking, you're like, how was the press even talking about her? <laughs> like she has done the best job of any Republican candidate I have seen. Well, she's yeah. former in press. handling the press. And she's even said that. Yeah. She's former press. And it, if we know anything about Democrats is that when you are supposed to be in the category they want you in yeah. because you're part of their little cabal and you break out of that and stop speaking their talking points, you are you worse mad. than the enemy. I don't think it's just Carrie Lake though. That's going to be the reason that Republicans flip the Senate race in Arizona. I also think that that a couple reasons, demographics as well, Hispanics are shifting to the right. And you actually, you actually saw this in 2020 where suburban Phoenix shifted hard to the left, but downtown Phoenix where most of the Hispanics lived actually went to actually shifted to the right. Yeah. Um, that's that donut effect. That's, you mentioned. that's, that's the donut theory that we've brought up uh, before on this podcast. Um, that combined with the fact that that suburbs do look like they're going to have a, rever a revision to the mean where suburbs are that have been trending to the left over the last few cycles 
are going to shift to the right again. Maybe not back to where they were 10 years ago, but sure. they're going to shift to the right again. That combined with this this trend line with Hispanics getting more conservative means that Mark Kelly's in serious danger, I think. And I think the polls are underestimating him in large part because I don't think the polling firms have necessarily corrected for the fact that Hispanics are getting more conservative right now. Well, and like but, to your point, Kelly doesn't get over Kelly, 50. Kelly has not broken 50% in a single poll going all the way back into... Well, it looks like there was one. Yeah, the New York Times, Siena College, back in October. No, that was 49. No, there's a... Uh, 51. 51 Go down, down, one. down. Go down one. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So one poll. Yeah. There's one... Here's the, here's the problem, though. Look at the trend line, though. It's getting more competitive. Now, yeah. here's the thing. Blake Masters hasn't let in a single poll, which is why people are saying, oh, well, he's, he's going to lose. But I, I really do think that the fundamentals of this state, which did shift to the left in large part because these white suburbanites around Phoenix shifted to the left. But a lot of those people now are worried about inflation and crime. And well, and they're a border state too. And, and it was, immigration as yeah. well. This is the third thing. So Carrie Lake, I think the stakes demographics, but I also think the nature of the campaign. Mark Kelly, and, and that, that gets into the polling as well, right? So I, I think the polling is not actually as favorable to Kelly as people think because he's the incumbent and he, he's really struggling to get to that 50% mark. But when you actually looked at the, um, at the debates... Kelly was really on the defensive on immigration. When you saw the debates between him and Blake Masters, he was like criticizing Joe Biden, but very softly because he had to tread a very fine line. And I don't think he managed to, to, to break that bar of what he needed to do in order to cement himself as a big enough outsider. He tried to say like, I'm an outsider. I'm going to stand up to Joe Biden. And, and the dude has been a rubber. He's not yeah. Chris, yeah. Uh, um, Christian Cinema. Yeah. He, he has just been a blatant rubber stamp for, for Chuck Schumer in yeah. the Democratic Senate. So I think Arizona is a tilt Republican. I, I think it's actually less likely to flip than than Nevada or sorry, Nevada. <laughs> but um, but I, I do actually think that um, that Mark Kelly loses. Um, and now we get to Georgia. So that means hold Pennsylvania, pick up two seats. Now and, we're at 52. So now we're at 52. Okay. And here comes, here comes 53. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> There's still more. Here comes 53. Um, Georgia, 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 Georgia. This has been... If, if I hate Pennsylvania this has been the nightmare for Democrats, Georgia has been the nightmare for Republicans. Yes, it has. Um, we've just had problem after problem after problem yeah. in Georgia. But there's a couple things. In fact, I'm actually, of all the states that I am currently predicting as either Republican holds or flips, I am least confident of Georgia. Mm. Um, I currently have Georgia rated as a tilt Republican, but I am the least confident of that, of any single... I'm more confident Republicans will flip Arizona, um, which the polling is not in our favor, yeah. than in Georgia, where the polling is really mixed and it's kind of all over the well, place. Well, they're also going to head for a runoff, and so that well, is a yeah. whole other mix. It's, it, it should... So, so my initial prediction currently is Georgia will go to a runoff because I don't think anybody will get 50%. If, they, if somebody does get 50%, I think it's more likely going to be Herschel Walker because of a red wave environment. Yeah. But there's a lot of things going against us in Georgia, not just the quality of the candidates and the campaigns that they've run. But I also think that the whole donut theory is working really hard against us in Georgia right now. Georgia is a state that has been dominated geographically by one urban area, and that's, that's Atlanta. metro Atlanta. And what you see is, is that in a lot of these states where there's one metro area that just overwhelms the rest of the state, those states tend to be more Democratic-leaning. And it just so happened that it took long enough for Georgia to actually flip into the blue column. But I remember in the summer 
in spring of 2020 predicting that Georgia would flip blue before any pollster. I've even got the Facebook post to yeah. go back and prove it. Before any pollster and any pundit thought that Georgia was even on the competitive landscape. Yeah. Before the Joe Biden campaign targeted Georgia. I was out there saying Georgia's going to flip blue. Georgia's moving away from Republicans from a demographic standpoint. Suburban Atlanta shifting very hard to the left. Um, Atlanta's ballooning like crazy. And, and again, when you look at states like Minnesota or um, New York State or Washington State, states that have one urban area that is just the core of the state. Yeah. In, in Minnesota, it's Minneapolis. In New York State, it's New York City. In Washington State, it's Seattle. Those are states that tend to be more Democratic-leaning. It's states when there's multiple cities yeah. and no single city overwhelms the rest. Texas, you've got Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Pennsylvania, you've got Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. When you have multiple cities, Ohio, you've got three Cincinnati, um, Cleveland and, and Columbus. Those are states that are more Republican leaning or competitive. And so Georgia, I really do think that the the nature of the state itself is very difficult for Republicans right now. And it's shifting away from us. So let me ask you that. OK, so you say that in the Senate, but and, and I, I know, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on gubernatorial races, but. Let's talk about the gubernatorial race, because obviously we think Carrie Lake is helping out, um, you know, Masters in, in Arizona. Is is the gubernatorial race helping out the Senate candidates at all in Georgia? And if not, why? Yes. Um, Brian Kemp is the incumbent and he's very favored to win. Yeah. Um, 538. Whoa, whoa, him. whoa. Did you say Brian Kemp is the incumbent? Oh, I'm sorry. Stacey you Abrams. Racist. Stacey Abrams. Of all the incumbent Democrats this year, Stacey Abrams is the most likely to lose. Okay. All um, right. <laughs> Well, let's keep in mind that Stacey Abrams thinks that if the gas prices are hurting you and inflation is hurting you, the best thing to do is abort your babies. Yeah. yeah so can I give an award for um, for worst campaigns of the year? Yes. Um, so so worst campaign of the year for U.S. Senate goes to John Fetterman. Yeah, it has to. Uh, no question He's about worked it. so hard yeah, on that. He's yeah. worked very hard for that. He's earned that. Um, worst campaign on the gubernatorial side goes to Stacey Abrams. Wow. And that was a competitive. At the beginning it was. That was a no, no, no. I mean, it was competitive for worst Democrat campaign oh, that's because true. between Whitmer and Hochul and it's like, oh, so many of them were like, I can say something dumb. No, I can say something dumb. But Stacey Abrams really just. So to give you an idea of how bad things are going for Stacey Abrams, the, the polling right now shows that she's going to lose by like five plus points. Yeah. And this is a state that she almost won in 2018. Yeah, and in votes. a state, as I said earlier, that is zooming to the left right now. Yeah. The, 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 the fundamentals of Georgia, if this weren't a midterm election where Republicans are favored, I would say that Warnock, the Democrat incumbent senator, would be favored to win. But it's because of two things. It's because of the fundamentals of the nationwide circumstances of this race, not the fundamentals of the state of Georgia, but the fundamentals of the midterm election itself so the whole midterm effect of it potentially being a red wave, that's working against Democrats in Georgia. And it's the gubernatorial race where Brian Kemp could end up dragging Herschel Walker over the line um, and, and and kind of give him the win in large part because he's about to clobber Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And well, she's already setting it up and saying that it's voter suppression laws and things like that. But the numbers are completely not in her yeah, favor to make that so claim. Most early oh, voting really? in, in Voter history. suppression laws. So let's get this straight. If Warnock wins, but you lose. Yeah. Voter suppression? Yeah, she's saying, <laughs> oh, we, we, only, we, we only rigged the ballots for one of the two races. What? <laughs> because they're not letting us bring water and food to That's people in line. True, by the That's way. not even true. That's not even, it's true. not even true. It's a lie. But like, you know, Stacey Abrams has run the worst campaign of any Democrat I've seen for on the yeah. gubernatorial side. I, she doesn't know how to communicate with, with anybody. Yeah. To give you an idea, 
we're looking at a scenario in Georgia, Southern state, with a black female running for the Democratic side and a black male running on the Democratic side for U.S. Senate, where black men very well might end up going about 20 to 25% for Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp, yeah. which is unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of. And the reason why is because Stacey Abrams, this is going to sound very controversial, but the, the the data and the polling and the news articles on this back this up. This is stuff from the left. Yeah, this is not your opinion. This, this is, is not you my talking opinion. about their research. Stacey yeah. Abrams does not know how to communicate to black men in Georgia. <laughs> that, that, just so we're clear. That's what the left is saying. That, I, 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 for, for, for those that, that, that disagree or take offense with that, don't blame me. Yeah. I'm just the messenger. I can show you news articles from yeah. left-wing outlets saying she has a problem with black men getting them to the polls and getting them to vote yeah. for her. They're not excited by her at all. And, and in large, it's not surprising because she doesn't know how to communicate to, it's not just black men. She doesn't know how to communicate to anyone. Yeah. Um, well, she, well she's won't also, she just she, blame the patriarchy for that? Yeah, she's also been living in this bubble for the last you know few years on on everybody in the press fawning over and everybody like the the Democratic Republican uh, governors or excuse me the Democrat Governors Association treating her as like an honorary member and like she was the this, real governor. Yeah, and, and so they they kept doing this where she was living in this constant echo chamber and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, she had to go back and actually make an argument Talk for to her normal positions people. and her and and convince people. It to It goes vote back for. to what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. There's an element of Democrats that. Are running for office right now, and a lot of them are going to lose on Tuesday. Yeah. That they're just completely disconnected from reality at this point. They literally do not know how to communicate to the average voter yeah. at all. They go up to the average voter and they say, "You haven't been following the January six trials. You must be a right wing extremist. Yeah. It'll be some Hispanic." first or second generation immigrant yeah. that wants to start a business. And yeah. they're upset about the fact that inflation's 10%. Yeah. And, and, and so like, yeah, uh, long story short, the, the, the two reasons that I have Georgia currently as a tilt Republican race on the Senate side is because of the fundamentals of the midterm effect and the fact that Stacey Abrams is about to get absolutely blown out of the water in Georgia on the gubernatorial side. And, and split ticket voting has really declined over the last 20 years. That's not okay. to say it doesn't exist. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, well, okay, it's so a weaker we, thesis, though. So we're, run, we're running one, up on an hour. So let us give us the last Senate one, and then we got to do a the, couple of The last things. one is um, New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire was a race that I currently have as tilt Democrat. Yeah. But the fact that it's gotten competitive, it's like Washington, except it's more competitive. The fact that it's gotten competitive is really amazing. Um, uh, um, Bolduc has, um, he's the Republican nominee. He's like, I, th I believe he's a former general. Yeah, former general, um, former SF guy. He has special ops guy. run a very disciplined campaign. He did yeah. the exact same thing that we've seen in some of these other states. He just looked at the polling and said, okay, we're going to talk about inflation. So why did the Republican Party abandon him? Um, because he said that he wasn't going to vote for Mitch McConnell for Senate Majority Leader. See, I, I'll tell you what, that should be a talking point for him, but it's amazing to me that it's like, oh, you're not going to vote for me as the leader? Well, then I'm going to pull We're not going to run stuff. ads for you. Yeah. Like, so you'd rather, you'd rather live in a scenario where you can't be the leader because you can't control the Senate rather than help somebody that could put you in a position to actually control the Senate and potentially still win that election. And New Hampshire is a very elastic state. And yeah. by that, I mean there's a lot of swing voters in yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah. This is a state that with the right messaging and advertising and with enough, oh, enough yeah. money you behind can it, it, you can win. Yeah. If, if he loses, it's not going to be because he did anything wrong. It's going to be because Republican leadership abandoned him yep. on purpose. Yeah. If they had invested the same resources into his race that they did in, say— Ohio yeah. or Nevada or sorry Nevada or <laughs> Georgia or Pennsylvania, I, I I would have this rated as it as a tilt Republican yeah. race. I, I I really I really hope he wins, mainly to just I mean that that just 
infuriates me because I can't tell you how many times like the, we, we get this, we get this drumbeat messaging from leadership where it's like, Oh, you've got to do this. Cause we're all one team. And look, we can't do anything if we don't have the majority. Yeah. And then you have a situation like this where it's like, okay, you got a really good chance of taking the majority, but guess what leadership? You might have to pick somebody that isn't going to lick your boots every time you want them to. It's like, Oh, we'd rather lose. So like, here's the map. You then <laughs> here's the map that I've got. Oh, look, here's the Yesley Vega ad. Um, yeah. Here's the map that I've got. Um, this is from, uh, 270 to win. This is the U.S. Senate. So I've got it color coded for those that are watching us on YouTube. Yeah. Um, this is the map. So my current predictions are ultimately a chamber that is going to, I think it'll be 5347. All right. And that is a lot more optimistic than yes, what please. Nate Silver has. Nate Silver has 5149. Yeah. Um, and I, I, again, a lot of these are really close. A lot, uh, three of them are tilt Republican. So look, we've got to do, we're coming up on an hour. And this was the main chamber that you wanted to talk about. So mm -hmm. there you go. You heard the prediction, 53 to 47. Republicans take it with the, the big ones being Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Here's my other – so here's my question. Um, it, again, we already kind of agree that – I mean, everyone agrees that, yeah, Republicans are most likely going to take the House. It's just a question by is it by, you know, 15 seats or is it by 40? You know, do they pick up 15? Do they pick up 40? Whatever. Let, let's talk about this. Let's kind of jump to what do you consider to be – indicator races so like what are things either for governor for um house for senate yeah what are races I, that if you're watching on election day and this happens that's a great indication that so we, we've already talked about the senate i'll I'll, yeah. I'll i'll talk on that on the house and the gubernatorial side and i want to end actually on some crazy things that are happening in florida right oh now. oh my gosh because yeah. it is incredible republicans are about to turn florida into a state that's like as red as like ohio and this and this is like right after like a major hurricane and all kinds of like yeah. ron De, to give you an idea ron DeSantis is, is very well might end up getting like a 10 point win in Florida. And not only that, the early vote data that has been coming out of Miami-Dade County, Miami-Dade County, 2 million people, urban majority minority, yep. literally voted for Hillary Clinton 2 to 1, voted for Barack Obama about 2 to 1, hardcore, traditionally hardcore Democrat stronghold. Here's a prediction for you. Ron DeSantis will win Miami-Dade County. That is, all right, you heard that. That there is a go. prediction. No Republican in 20 years yeah. has won Miami-Dade County. And what do you think the reason is for that? I, I think it's because a couple things. DeSantis is an extremely strong candidate. And I, 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 I think there's a- Chris a is a horrible candidate. Fundamental- hardcore realignment that is taking place in Florida politics where Hispanic voters in South Florida are just deserting the Democrats in droves. Yeah. And it's not just them. You're seeing an influx of conservative retirees moving down to the state as well. I, I mean, to give you an idea of how bad it is for the Democrats in Florida, if DeSantis gets the margin that I think he's going to get statewide, if he gets 54 or 55% statewide, which I don't think is out of the realm of possibility, I think on the low end he'll get 52 or 53. But if he gets 54 or 55, there's a chance, I don't think it's likely, but there's a chance, an outside chance that he actually flips Palm Beach County. Wow. Palm what? Beach County was so Democrat. That was the that was the county where the 2000 election, yeah. uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah. the hanging crisis chads. had. Yeah. Where Al Gore, uh, to give you an idea, Al Gore won that county two to one. Yeah, and and I think there's an outside chance that that Palm Beach actually. All right, votes so that's for when. It, so watching Miami Dade and watching what's going on, that's an indicator. Yeah. Maybe not for the entire country, but it's 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 indicative it, for of, a larger realignment yeah. shift that could be leading into 2024, and that'll be another okay. conversation for another day. Um, now to give you an idea with the House, what we've currently got right now is um. Right now, you've got um, 220 Democrats and 112 Republicans. I 212 currently, Republicans. Sorry. Oh, so, sorry, I meant to say 212 Republicans. 
here's what my current map is. And I've intentionally got our district, Virginia 7th, uh, blocked out because I don't want to make a prediction for our race. <laughs> um, that's the one race I won't make a prediction on. But here's what I've got right now. I think Republicans are going to get about 230. Okay. Um, now, to give you an idea nationwide, if Republicans get more than 230 seats, if they pick up more than 230 seats, that is an absolute tsunami. Yeah. Um, if they get less than 230 seats, it's still a wave as long as it's more than, like, say, 220. So 220 to 230 seats, I would say, is a GOP wave. 230 plus is, like, an absolute wipeout. Yeah. Um, and, and Republicans are basically guaranteed to flip the entire chamber. But to give you an idea for some specific races that are um, going to be extremely competitive. You're looking at um, Patrick Maloney and New York 17th. He's a member of Democratic leadership, and he's in serious trouble right now. Um, uh, Alan Fung in Rhode Island yeah. might actually end up flipping that, and we haven't ha Republicans haven't controlled a congressional seat in Rhode Island in decades. Um, so those are some New England Northeast ones. Um, you're also looking at... Um, some races in Pennsylvania, to give you an idea, a friend of ours, Joe, is actually working yep. on a campaign in Pennsylvania here in the 8th District against Matt Cartwright. This is a seat that Trump narrowly won in 2020. Cartwright is a strong incumbent, though. So yeah. so this is uh, considered a toss-up, pure toss-up by a lot of people. If, if um, Pennsylvania's 8th, as well as the 7th, down in the Lay Valley. If either of those flip, those are both held by um, Democrat incumbents. If either of those flip, that's a sign of a, of a landslide. Yeah. Here in Virginia, the 7th is another one that people need to look out for. Um, I would also point to people in the Midwest, um, to Ohio's 9th District uh, with Marcy Kaptur. She's been in office for a very long time, like 40 years, and she's in a district that basically was 50-50 in 2020. After redistricting, it got redder. She's a very strong incumbent, member of House leadership, um, but very, very vulnerable. That's a district that could flip as well to the Republicans. And then there's two in Michigan as well. There's the eighth and the seventh in Michigan. The seventh has a Democrat incumbent that is very, very similar to Abigail Spanberger. Um, Alyssa Slotkin is, um, has a background as well in, in some of the same similar areas as Spanberger did. Um, and I think in either intelligence or FBI work or something like that, um, she has, she, she's basically a Spanberger clone. Yeah. Um, and she's in a district that barely voted for Joe Biden. So that's another seat that in the, um, in the eighth, which is an old working class seat and some of these old, you know, like heart of the rust belt in Michigan yeah. that yeah. Is, is shifting hard to the right, but hasn't actually flipped yet. So those are two that, that, um, in the Midwest, in addition to that third one in Ohio that Republicans need to look out for. And, um, the South um, Southwest, what you want to look for in the Rio Grande Valley is the 34th and the 15th districts in Texas. These are two districts on the Rio Grande Valley. These are overwhelmingly Hispanic districts, like 95% Hispanic. And I think that the 34th has two incumbents, one Democrat and one Republican in it. So it's not really held by either party right now. Um, that is a seat that Republicans should lose because it's got like Brownsville and like, like literally on the river. Yeah. Um, historically overwhelmingly Democrat. The fact that it's even competitive shows you the, the shift that you're seeing with Hispanics. If Republicans flip that, that is another sign of a big Hispanic flip. Um, and as well as the 15th, um, and on the outside, you could say the 28th. I don't think Republicans flip it, but if they do, those again, those three Rio Grande um, seats, if they flip two of those three, let alone all three of them, that is a huge, huge tectonic fundamental shift in our politics. And then I'll, I'll close on the West Coast. Um, there's a couple of seats in um, uh, Nevada and California and Oregon that people should look out for. So the three Las Vegas area districts. So you're looking at the fourth, the third, and the first in Nevada. 
Um, Democrats control all three of them, but they tried to gerrymander to defend all three of them. And ironically enough, they might actually draw what's called a dummy mander and they might accidentally lose all three of them. <laughs> I don't think that's likely. I think they'll yeah. win at least one, if not two of them. But if any of those flip, that's a sign that Republicans are probably going to end up winning at least one of either the gubernatorial or Senate elections in Nevada. And then finally, in um, in California, there's two Republican-held seats that are very competitive right now. There's um, California's 22nd district. Um, uh, Volato has uh, been in and out of office multiple times. He, he's won and lost multiple times. He's a strong incumbent that, um, that has a lot of ties to the Hispanic community in the Central Valley, but it's an overwhelmingly Joe Biden district. He yeah. has no business holding the district. It's kind of a miracle that he's holding it to begin with. And the same thing with um, with Garcia and uh, Los Angeles yeah. County. Um, kind of a miracle that he's even holding it to begin with. If these are two seats that, like, like of all the seats that were Republican held, these are ones that should flip. But if we hold them, again, that's another sign that's indicative of a wave. And then finally, I will end with the new district in Oregon, the fifth district. Um, Technically, the new district is actually the sixth. Um, they picked up a new district, but they redrew all the lines. And so the fifth is, is not really the new district on paper, but it is in reality. Um, the fifth district's previous incumbent um, was a more moderate Democrat that was ousted by a hardcore left-wing socialist. And it's a district that drew, drew all the way up into Port uh, Portland. Yeah. Um, it should it voted for Biden narrowly because it includes a lot of uh, yeah, conservative rural rurals. It was gerrymandered by Democrats to be a, a Democrat pickup. But... Um, I, I, I think it flips. The Democrats have really dropped the ball there. Um, so those are the races that I would say to look out for on election night in terms of, of the House, of what they want to want to be paying attention to. We've talked about some of the gubernatorial ones, Georgia to look out for, Nevada yeah. to look out for, Arizona. Michigan. Michigan. Mi the big ones in the Midwest are Michigan and Wisconsin that yeah. have Democrat incumbents. I think Wisconsin flips to the Republicans. I don't know if Michigan does at this point. And then if you want to get really gutsy, New York, oh, which gosh. I don't think is going to flip, but yeah. I think it's going to be so much closer than any race we've seen in the last 20 yeah. years in New York. And then finally, my favorite, Florida, which at this point, the only thing that's uh, up for <laughs> doubt in Florida is what is the margin of the landslide going to be? <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. We're going to have a 53-47 uh, Senate. We're going to have a 230-204 House uh, favoring the Republicans on both sides. Republican governor candidates are probably going to have a better than average night. Um, listen, we would like to get it. I know I promise we get into future predictions, but honestly, I think we're running a little bit late. Plus, I actually think the future predictions might be, the, and, and when I talk about future predictions, here's what I mean. It, it goes back and looking at a race and, and trying to analyze whether or not you're watching something that is purely a result of, of unique circumstances. You know, something like, you know, Republicans picking up seat after 9-11 because the country was very unified around, you know, fighting terrorism or Al-Qaeda versus genuine seeds of like a political realignment. So we're going to save that because as soon as the election is over on Wednesday, we're going to come back here. We're going to do, do an after do action review. That right? would we're going to, we're going to postmortem review and after action review and figure out what happened. We get to uh, either congratulate Christian on his wonderful predictions or mock him for getting everything wrong. Yeah. Well, let's hope that it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, listen, thank you. So there you go. You have your predictions. You've heard it here. I don't know if it was first, but you've heard it best here. Anyways, thank you very much for joining us. We will see you for our post-election coverage in our next episode. And once again, have a great day. And don't forget to vote.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.